0: Luke 2, 8 through 20. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, the Lord. Thanks, Daniel. Good morning, or good afternoon.
1: Gosh, I practiced that too. Just kidding. Well, I don't know if you heard it in the reading, but I did. It was a long time ago in a Galilee far, far away. Huh? I I know. I promised my family only one dad joke, but greetings and Merry Christmas Eve. My name's Rob and I'm a little bit of a Star Wars fanatic. I named one of my kids Luke. I was lobbying for Skywalker as a middle name, but got shot down. Uh, my wife wanted to name one of our kids Leia, but I was convinced that I would always call her Leia, so that one was got scratched too. But even if you're not a Star Wars fan, you have to admit it's hard to avoid the Star Wars hype. It's everywhere. From Baby Yoda from The Mandalorian, I mean seriously, <laughs> so stinking cute I had to start watching the show. Um, to the third installment of the third trilogy, The Rise of Skywalker. And please don't tell me anything because I have not seen it yet. But uh, I, which is hard to avoid because of all the talk out there, especially when I'm secretly shopping for the perfect lightsaber to put in my stocking. So um, I'm holding out for that. But uh, the reason I bring up Star Wars is because actually, Star Wars and Christmas have more in common than hype and gifts. Maybe you don't know this, but the writer of Luke puts um, in the story these events that sound eerily similar to Star Wars. First, it starts out with, um, in Luke 2, verse 1, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. Now, we always skip right over Caesar Augustus. How much do you know about this guy? If you take a little walk through Roman history with me, I think that you will experience a new kind of peace that you may not hear in the story that you've always heard. Caesar Augustus was this man who was known as Gaius Octavian, at least 25 or 30 years before Jesus was born. He was rising into power. He rejected the title of emperor or dictator, but he preferred to be called the Principus Civitatus, the first citizen. In reality, Augustus, or Octavian, was simply the last man standing in a bloody 30, well, probably 10 to 15 years of Roman civil war. Wars that were not actually started by him, but started by his uncle, maybe you've heard of him, Julius Caesar. We get our Julian calendar from this guy. Julius Caesar um, was a general, not a Sith Lord, but a general who attempted to turn the Roman Republic... Into an empire 15 years before Augustus. Now, why does this matter? Well, almost 500 years, Rome had been led by a Senate. There were many legislatures in those 500 years, and about the century before Christ, that central authority had been breaking down. Order was giving way to anarchy, and the senators were fighting for power all amongst themselves. So, in times of emergency, military generals like Pompey, or Caesar, these people we heard about in school and didn't really understand much, they were winning the loyalty of not only the armies they led, but of the people in Rome. Does that sound familiar? Because it should. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you. But in 50 BC, Caesar had made a lot of powerful enemies, kind of like that guy. And over the next several years, he started wars in the outer regions of the Roman territories, and defeated those enemies at home and abroad and seized that power for himself. But unlike Emperor Palpatine, Julius Caesar ruled for just two short years. And then he was taken out by senators that had wanted to have an end to his dictatorial leadership. Enter Augustus. Augustus was his nephew, Uh, Julius Caesar's nephew, and the named heir. Even though Mark Antony was one of his military generals, he decided to hand things off to Octavian. So Octavian and Mark Antony decided that they were going to get revenge on all the people who'd plotted against Julius Caesar, and they did. They divided the kingdom of Rome up between uh, Octavian taking the northern part of the emperor, the territory, and then... Antony taking the southern territory. That was Egypt and coming around to Israel. And if you know your geography, then you'll know that in, unless you take a ship to go from Rome to Egypt, you have to pass through Israel and Judah, where all of God's people live. This is what's happening in the time before Christ. We skip over it because we don't think it's that important, but actually, This thing that was so volatile, when when the story read that, when we hear that that things were up in air, that it was difficult to live in this time, this is why it was difficult. Years and years of civil war, because obviously, Mark Antony, he wanted power, Octavian, he wanted power. Antony just happened to be seduced by Cleopatra, who actually had a child with Julius Caesar. I know, it sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? Or at least Game of Thrones-ish, but not the Bible but actually, this is what's all happened before Jesus comes on the scene. So Mark Antony and Cleopatra, they, uh, they have a thing and they start attacking Octavian, but he gets word and he comes to attack first in this place called Actum. Octavian defeats Antony and Cleopatra. And he solidifies the end of all this civil war after over 15 years of civil war and the people all herald him as the next great ruler, the supreme leader, if you will. He actually says, no, I don't want to be supreme leader. And they call him instead first citizen and they change Octavian to Augustus, Latin for revered one. Interestingly enough, the King Herod that we read about in the Bible actually sides with Mark Antony, and then when he sees that Antony is losing, he quickly switches sides, flips, and says, Oh, Octavian, your majesty, I'm really loyal to you, and I'm loyal to Rome. And Herod is able to retain power in Israel, the king of Israel. That is the life that Jesus is born into. So when Augustus decides to issue a decree, this one on taxes is a smaller one, the much bigger decree that he issues just a few years into his tenure as supreme leader is the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. This decree that says that everyone is free to travel and trade in the Roman Empire. Because Rome's armies is going to be scattered throughout all of its territories that basically covered the known world at that time, only being blocked by deserts, going all the way up into Britain, all the way down into Egypt, and all the way across the, um, towards India and China, except getting stopped by deserts and mountains. Vast, vast empire. The Army is scattered throughout, and as long as you don't cross the army, you can have peace. Not to be outdone with just being named the revered one, there was Halley's comment, I believe that's the correct pronunciation, Halley's comment streaks across after Augustus is crowned king, even though he won't call himself king, and he says, oh, that is a sign that Julius Caesar is now with the gods. And so if Julius Caesar, my adopted father, is a god that makes me the son of a God. Although the people like to refer to Augustus as Soter, or Savior. Interesting that 25 years before Christ comes on the scene, there is someone who is claiming to be the son of a God and the Savior of the world. Interesting. We don't always read that. Why do I bring it up? I bring it up because it's a dramatic story. It sounds like Game of Thrones, it sounds like uh, The Hunger Games, it sounds even a little bit Lord of the Rings-ish, it sounds like a good drama. In fact, it's what George Lucas based the Star Wars saga on, the fall of the great Roman Republic into this empire. It's dramatic, but it's not scandalous. See, the story of Christmas is scandalous. And we hear it so often that we don't let ourselves really understand what it means. See, Augustus is this ambitious man from this average family who worked his way from soldier to military commander, from military commander to emperor, and from emperor to the son of a god. And we like that story. That's an interesting story. It's one we'd watch or read or listen to. And I think the reason why is because secretly we all want that story. Man, if I could rise up in power from this to this to this. Oh, if I could just rise up in my company from this to this to this. Oh, if I could just rise up in my school from this to this to this. A man that becomes a God. And if you look through all of the libraries of the world, guess what? You can find that story in every one of their libraries. Look in Rome, look in Greece, look in uh, Scandinavia, look on the other side of the world, in China, in Japan. Every culture has stories, and it's usually men, of man assuming power, wanting more power, and succeeding and possibly even attaining godlike status. It's dramatic, but like I said, it's not scandalous. Scandalous is what we see in the Christian story. It's what we see in the Christmas story. God becomes human. The creator of the world, as author and theologian Frederick Buckner says, the creator of the world, the one to the ends of the earth, comes to us in Diapers. It's not the incredible work of a powerful man. It's not the bold strategy of a wise woman. It's not even the faithful result of a religious person. In fact, it should shame the most powerful of human accomplishments. It's a mere child placed at the midpoint in human history that we didn't do anything or achieve anything to be a part of. God comes to us. It's what Minnesotans would call interesting. But like I said, Frederick Buckner calls the whole Christian story strange. And until, he says, until we too have taken the idea of the God-man seriously enough to be scandalized by it, we have not taken it as seriously as it demands to be taken. Think about it, the idea of God-filled baby sitting in a pile of straw. The one who creates the world now can't do anything. It's something that we've grown up with that so many of us don't really think about it until we've outgrown it. But if we just consider the way that Luke writes the story, he takes the backdrop of the, the greatest empire of the world, maybe not the best, but the greatest, and he puts it in the, in the shadows of the greatest emperor of the greatest kingdom. And then he says in Luke four or 2.4, Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He takes the backdrop of the greatest emperor of the greatest empire, and then he includes the greatest leader, the greatest king in all of God's people in Israel, King David. And he puts Christ right in between them, as if to tell all the readers of Luke just how great this child will be. And not only that, he includes it came time for the baby to be born in verses six and seven. And so she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in cloths and she placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. The greatest promise of the history of the world from God, this act that didn't require any human doing, no human participation whatsoever initiation whatsoever, that God saw the misery of the world And himself put himself in the story to rescue us. He came not as a mighty one, but came in obscurity. And he didn't arrive in a palace or a temple where he should be as a king or a priest, but those places have guards and barriers and they keep certain people out. Instead, he came in a place that anyone and everyone who has eyes to see can find him even shepherds. The story says that there were shepherds living in the fields. Do you catch that? They're homeless. They're not staying in the fields. They're not working in the fields. They're living in the fields. The shepherds came to homeless, indentured workers. And the angel of the Lord shone around them, and the glory of the Lord was around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said, don't be afraid. I bring you, you, homeless shepherds. Good news of great joy. Today in the town of David, there is light. (laughs) A Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger you will not find a king in a palace you will not find a high priest in the temple you will find a baby in a manger well shepherds are not worried about babies in mangers that they're not kept out of things by babies in mangers So they didn't sit around wondering, is this really a message from God? Like some of us do. They didn't sit around and go, hmm, who's going to watch the flocks? Now I'm sure someone did watch the flocks. They didn't sit around, ooh, I've got to make sure I have the right clothes on. I'm sure they wore clothes. But they came. And they didn't worry about what they would look like or even what they would say. Because nobody has pretense when it's a baby. They were awake and willing. They had eyes to see and hearts to move, and they ran and they saw the baby. And the text goes on to say that they were changed by what they see and hear. It says in verse 15, When the angels left them and had gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened that the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, we just consider that today. When they had seen him, they spread the word about what concerned him. And all who heard them, didn't see the baby, didn't see the angels, just saw the shepherds the homeless guys who sit with the sheep, they too were amazed. See, I think that that's what we're invited to do at Christmas. We're invited to see and be changed and worship and bow down by the God-filled baby. Do you let yourself be scandalized by the story? You consider just the atrocity that nothing we did as humans, as great as we are, brought this about. It was only and all the work of God. God doesn't judge like humans judge. Humans like to divide between the godly and the godless, the good and the evil, the exceptional and the ordinary, and yet God loves humans without any distinction. God became human, and he invites us to become truly human. If you want to be changed by the Christmas story, let yourself become truly human to see and hear and feel, to surrender the fact that you can't bring about any amount of God thing in the world and neither can I. But as we come to God and accept and admit that we are not good enough, we can receive him like the shepherds receive him. And I believe we can be changed today. Would you consider the God-filled baby this Christmas? Would you pray with me? Holy God, you are good. You are the creator of the universe and your mercy and your goodness came to us. God, we admit that we cannot do it on our own. We are not good enough. But you never asked us to be. God, we fall far from you, we doubt you, we leave you, we reject you, we attempt to do it on our own. We love the stories of people becoming godlike, and yet you became like us. You came from a virgin without sin. You lived a perfect life without sin and you offered your life in death without sin to be the offering for us. God, let us never tire of that story. You did it to be in relationship with us, not so we could know something, say something, believe something, or be labeled something, but to be with us. God, I pray that you would wake us up and open our eyes to the reality that we need you that we don't have to be needy to need you, that we can be in need of you and be competent, loved, talented, skilled, blessed, courageous, strong, intelligent beings. God, would you change us today? We don't need to run after power because you have all the power. We don't need to wonder if there's a purpose in life, God, because you are the one who fills that purpose. God, would you speak to us about where we're at and what we need today to be changed by you. Amen.